welcome to the Listening to the Earth podcast. I have the huge pleasure today to be with Dr. Mosunda Mumba, who is from Zambia, currently living in Nairobi. Mosunda, you've been working for over two decades in the fields of water management, conservation, wetland ecology, integrated landscape management. You've worked with WWF International. You have a PhD in wetland hydrology from University College London. You've been with working with UNEP since 2008 and are currently the head of the Terrestrial Ecosystems Unit there and the lead for the Terrestrial Ecosystems component of the United Nations Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. And last year, you were also nominated chair of the Global Partnership for Forest and Landscape. I also consider you to be a Renaissance woman, mother of two gorgeous earthlings. And you, in your spare time, which I don't know how you managed to have, your abstract painting, cooking, cycling, drawing, and even writing poetry. Wow, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. And you've also been an amazing support in the Listening to the Earth team. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very curious to ask you, what does listening to the earth mean to you? And, and how do you do it? And, and does it influence your work in any way? What place does it have in your work that you do? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad to be part of the team on Listening to Earth. So what does listening to Earth really firstly mean to me? Um, you know, I grew up in northern Zambia in a rural town called Mansa. And so I remember just, you know, hanging out with my twin sister and my grandmother and she would, you know, take us to different places around the town, but also show us the nature. And I remember just one time um, her pointing at the sky and saying, can you see the swallows? And this was in October. It was a hot day. It must have been like 30 degrees centigrade. And she's like, can you see the swallows? And I was like, yes, we can see the swallows. And um, she goes, and when you see the swallows, that means that the rain's about to come and they should be arriving within the next two days. Or, and I thought, oh, okay. Yeah, you know, I didn't think much about it. I was just a 12-year-old. And then I realize much later in life that actually nature speaks to us. Nature tells us, connects us, and gives us the signals and the messages. And so in my work, I've been very, very fortunate to travel um, to different parts of the world, um, work on mountain issues and work on uh, forest-related issues and, and, and wetland-related issues. And what I have found in all these places, and one example I'd like to give in 2008, just before I joined um, UN Environment, I took an expedition with 25 men. I need to put that point across. Now, the Ruwenzori Massif is between Congo DRC and, and Uganda. And we climbed for 10 days, five up and five down. And for the first time, I realized how you hear the sound of water, but you can't see it. You're hearing it in the crevices of the mountain. And then you climb on this glacier in the middle of the equator and you're going with your crampons and you can hear the sound of the cracks and it's surreal. And then you start coming down and you see birds and you see insects and you see, you know, different, literally nature just evolving in front of you. But for me, what was also very fundamental was the silence. I didn't have a phone for 10 days, apart from, of course, the satellite phone for emergencies, but I did not, my phone was not pinging with text messages coming in or anything. It was beautifully silent. 
there is something that was so healing about that, that by the time I came back down and I was in a city, the noise is almost quite deafening because you've been away like on a retreat for 10 days with just the nature. So listening to earth for me is all of that connection. And I've been very lucky that in my work, it connects me to these spaces. And I have a moment to see the humans who also interact to save these very spaces that also talk to us and give us a moment to reflect and also give us a moment to learn about who we are and the space that we share with other species. So in many ways, I've been very, very fortunate. And that's what makes me so, so excited about being part of this amazing group. Thank you. And are there, I don't know, do you have an example where you, for example, when you were working on wetlands and where listening to the land inspires you in some of the technical or policy guidance work that you are then brought to do mm -hmm. in your advocacy? Do you have sure. an example? Um, When I worked in Zambia, I was working on a river, the Kafiwa River, and the Kafiwa River is a tributary. It's a big river. It's a tributary to the Zambezi River, which, of course, is a massive river as well. And, um, and I remember going and working with the community around um, just the, the Kafiwa town and also Lokinba, where I ended up doing my PhD. And we went on a boat. Um, and as we went on this boat and, and you know, the water is splashing and showing and, and you can see all these um, insects and, and dragonflies and it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden in front of us, there was just this bed of nothing but water hyacinth, the weed. And I, we stopped the boat because, you know, the, the, the actual um, plants of water hyacinth are very dangerous for the engine of, of, a, mm. of a motorboat. So we stopped and then we're just silent there. And then you can, you can hear these plants kind of, you know, when they separate and then they move and, you know, the wind comes. And, but in some places, they're just intact. They're just there. And I looked across um, on one side of the river and I see this woman, the pregnant woman, standing on the edge of this river. You know, she's got a hand on the waist and kind of looking and looking. And I had the most surreal moment and I thought, oh, my goodness, she probably can get to the closest hospital by road. It's easier for them to get onto a boat, a canoe, and get to the other side of the river because it would be the closest point for her to get to the clinic or the hospital. And I just thought, here I, here I am looking at invasive species and the problems in an ecosystem that they pose as a problem. And yet it's also a health policy issue and maternal health policy mm -hmm. issue. It's um, because the pollution is what obviously led to the hyacinth um, spreading and being problematic. I, you know, I did not look at that landscape the same again mm. because I suddenly realized the vulnerability of that woman across on the edge of that river. Um, and also, I mean, her husband was just standing there looking like, oh, the, the, the blockage has arrived. It's come again. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So, In listening to that, I just thought, okay, I need to alert the government when we speak about water hyacinth in terms of the connectivity it brings about and how we cannot look at this just as an environmental problem. It is not an environment. It's also a social problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an economic problem because the fishermen could not go in some parts of the river when it was blocked. And, and so this, just looking at those spaces and, and listening in and, and, and being emotive and being in the moment, in that moment to understand This is our level of vulnerability when an ecosystem is potentially degraded. 
and maybe the COVID-19 virus that we're now all experiencing, we're under confinement as we speak and lockdown is a massive um, example of that. I remember you writing recently an article about how the deforestation is also one of the causes that's bringing these disease from the wild more into the human realm. Exactly. In fact, yesterday I was speaking with a scientist here in Nairobi, here in Kenya, who's leading some exciting work. And I, I literally just came across this paper when I was writing that article for the, uh, the GPSLR. And I realized that he has worked uh, together with another team of Kenyan and Chinese scientists. They've worked on bats. And not only are they working on the bats, this is 2017 um, article that was published. They've been working on this article, basically looking at the, the, the mobility of bats across Kenya from the forest, because the fruit bats, from the forest into the cities because of urbanization. And also these they tested all the bats and they found out obviously all these bats have corona and other retroviruses. And I asked them and I said, look, is there a correlation? Can you just send me a map and just tell me where you can superimpose the places where the deforestation is happening or we can see, and mind you, these bats have been placed with chips. So you can see where they're flying and where they, when they stop going to that area when the forest is gone. So here we are in a space where we're thinking, oh, you know, it might be somebody who took a flight from London, came back to Nairobi, who's bringing the coronavirus. But it's possible that the virus is in our midst because of these animals getting closer to human settlements. So this is also the conversation that we need to start having now, um, which obviously the head of our agency, Inga, has been propounding on. We need to keep these ecosystems intact. Yes. Um, because the closer we bring the wildlife to us, they're bringing something with them. We've seen with Ebola, we've seen with SARS, and, and now we see with COVID. So the closer they're coming, and, and this may not be the last, I hate to say that, but this may not be the last we're seeing all this, but we have an opportunity, we have a window to go back and say, hmm, and reflect. Yeah. And perhaps now to begin to have conversations at, you know, at national, um, regional, sub-regional level and stuff like that. And one thing that was very interesting when I spoke to this guy yesterday, he basically said, listen, we're now beginning to track where the bats are going. And when he discovered that I'm Zambian, he was like, oh, oh, I'm so glad to just hear that because we've just seen on our radar that there's a bat from here that's arrived in Kasanka, which is not far from where I was born. Um, in this big forest area where thousands upon thousands of bats migrate. And I'm like, it went across the border. He's like, oh, no, that's not it. That's not, that's not even it. We just tracked another one that's just gone from Kenya to Tanzania to Congo DRC. Mm. And then they've tracked another one, you know, several that have gone from Kenya to Uganda. Now, what that's telling you is that these species are not respecter of borders. Of course not. Yeah. So this is where now we begin to see our vulnerability. Even if we can close the borders, we can do what we've got to do. Um, the very carrier of the disease is going right across. Yeah. And actually, Inger Anderson uh, recently wrote, I think, an article where she's saying, you know, that the earth is kind of calling and, and asking that we listen to her. And last year in New York, I had the pleasure to hear her in the Nature for um, Climate rally in New York around the UN Climate Summit. And she started her speech by inviting us to breathe in and through our breath, remind ourselves of our connection to nature. And I, I appreciated that, yeah. you know, bringing the awareness of, of the importance of listening to nature, to the earth at the heart of a political event like was happening in New York. And you've also 
um, done a lot of that in, in Madrid last year in the COP. So I wanted to ask you, what, why do you think it could be important to bring this attitude of listening to the earth in the environmental policy making space and the implementation of these policies? Is that something that's already done or do we need to do more of it? And, and what would that look like? What can we do concretely? You know, you know, it's interesting that you ask that because, um, I mean, talking of Madrid, actually, I was very fortunate to moderate a session of indigenous and local peoples and, and looking at the elements of resilience. And we had a very interesting moment there because there was a time when, you know, policymakers and others were having a conversation with some indigenous communities from North America, from the Arctic, from Africa, and, and, and it was amazing. It was just amazing. But there was, a common, there was a common framing that emerged from that, you know. Um, most of the indigenous peoples were like, look, we're fed up of you guys saying we're going to mainstream this into this. I'm going to mainstream. We don't mainstream. In fact, in our languages, that word doesn't translate into anything. But what we do have is weaving, we weave in and mm -hmm. we listen and part of that listening. And, and, and I think the problem I think that has happened historically is that to some extent, I feel that there's an arrogance of, of us as, you know, policy people who've kind of maybe detached or disconnected from really um, talking about the elements of the work that we do and also listening into the indigenous peoples because traditional and indigenous and local people live in this environment. So they're seeing signs. They're like, oh, we don't see bees anymore. We don't see that bird anymore. We don't. So how do we then listen to that voice? How do we listen to those voices and say, you don't see bees anymore? When did you stop seeing them? And then framing that into agriculture policies, for example, or environmental policies or land management policies. And if it's agriculture policy, why are the bees disappearing? Or oh, we've got this level of pesticides, this kind of stuff. Something is killing them. So we need to change the rules and we need to change it. So this is where I feel that the, the decade for ecosystem restoration brings together all these different stakeholders to look at those landscape in a very holistic manner. Yeah. We can no longer afford to just say, oh, yeah, you know, I just live in the forest and that's all I do. And, and no, but your forest is connected to a river. It's connected to a mountain. It's connected to a dry land. It's connected to it's the, that interaction, that systems thinking is so pivotal in how we do the listening. So I find that more and more uh, people are beginning to realize um, that they need not only listen to the peoples who are very much living in these spaces, but also listening to themselves. What is it that we lost? And so um, what I do a lot is that I, I share when I'm presenting in conferences or when I'm talking about different places, I'm very emotive. I almost use um, a model where I just share pictures mm -hmm. and I say, what would you imagine this could be? And I'd be like, well, oh, and I show a degradation picture. What would you imagine this? What do you think this is? And then people begin to, and, and, and usually it's the place that I'm visiting, I'm going to. And, and it's funny because somebody in the city may not be aware that just a few kilometers downstream of where they are, or just, you know, a few kilometers up, you know, upstream of where they are, this is what the landscape looks like. And this is the levels of degradation that the, so people need to connect to see that you're part of nature, you are nature, but also you're part of the solution to make sure that this space thrives and having a moment of humility to say, wow, wow. Okay. And that's what, that's what I realized when I climbed Ruenzori. Um, 
I was on a, I was on the other side of the mountain and, and I took a picture because I was a photographer for the trip. I took a picture where I was almost like 30, 40 minutes away from the team that was climbing the glacier. Oh my goodness, Charlotte. I, I was there thinking, we're so small in the scheme of things as humans. And yet the impact we've had on the planet is insurmountable unprecedented and i think this is where coming full circle with covid19 i think the earth was just like hang on stop stop just just stop you just need a moment to breathe and you need a moment to realize and a moment to reflect mm-hmm. you're grounded mother earth saying you're grounded go and think about what you've been doing in your room <laughs> yeah, go, go 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 you know here's just be in your naughty corner over there and reflect and think and, 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 and really, and it may seem like a very painful process, um, but we need this pain. We need this pain to, to, you know, to, to, to really understand that even these, you know, routines that we've taken for granted, like I need to run there and I need to go and pick up flowers from my florist, or I need to go to a hairdresser. I just need to go and pick up my favorite croissant and my cake. And, you know, we've been on a run, on a run, on a run without a moment of just, stop and think. And I think what is so wonderful about this moment, in my opinion, um, and it's terrible that people are dying and very sad and tragic, but what's wonderful in this moment is that people will begin to hear the sound of their voices. And sometimes hearing the sound of that voice is very scary because mm. we've been so noisy. So it's been, it's been literally, zzz, you can't hear anything. And now there's silence and you have to hear the sound of your voice and you have to encounter yourself in this moment and to say, oh, actually, I didn't really like croissant. Why did I always dash there to just go and buy croissant? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it's interesting how the listening to the earth is actually very connected to listening to ourselves, to coming totally. home to ourselves. Yeah. Totally, totally. Because, you know, and, and the irony of it is the very lands all the spaces that are getting attacked, the space that gets, the pulmonary space that gets attacked is the same depiction as forests. Yeah. And many places you see, so then we begin to realize, my goodness, our breath is so connected to these healing spaces. And that is really the crux and heart of it, the breath, the, the, these thriving things that pulsate. And people forget that, you know, earth is a pulsating thing. It's mobile, it's agile, it's just, it's living. Mm. Um, and then you realize the fragility of your being um, through that, through a disease. Um, and, and that is, it's, it's very eye-opening and very heart-opening, I think. If we don't walk out of this, if really even even just... 50% of the earth don't, you know, humans on this planet don't walk out of this totally different and changed and positive, then we have a big fundamental problem. Then we have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. And I still feel that we will still have quite a lot of work to do around listening to earth and, and really being emotive. And maybe one of the things that we also need to think about is also how we communicate, how we listen to earth, how we bring that in our storytelling how we bring that in our healing spaces. You know, a lot of times people are so obsessed with, oh, I just am going to go buy pills and pop this and blah, 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 and stuff like that. But what about your food system? Let food be thy medicine and medicine thy food. So what about our food systems? How are we managing that? The very healing stuff that we take in, what are we putting on our skins? What are, you know, what creams and products that are detrimental to our very well-being? What are we, you know, people will begin to reflect a lot more about that, I think. Yeah. 
And maybe if being locked up, um, especially for those who live in a city without access to a garden, mm-hmm. feeling the, the, the pain of absence of nature or not being able to be in nature and something we may take for granted, the soothing presence of trees and birds. And, mm-hmm. and also maybe it brings me to the point of um, the infrastructure. So how, I mean, if, if, if the architects have a moment now, this is the moment to rethink how we build our cities. Um, I think people will go out there. Um, I'm sure the photographers taking tons of, you know, pictures of empty streets, um, giving a perspective like, wow, this, this, because it's very difficult to, to take a picture of an empty street, be it daylight or, or nighttime. Right. And then suddenly these streets are totally empty. I, I saw some pictures of Rome and I was like, wow, wow. I've never seen Rome. You know, you look at like, Oh, there's a statue there. Oh, Ooh, I never paid attention to that. <laughs> And you begin to see that, oh, oh, there's actually a creeper there. It's actually growing on this wall. You begin to have a different perspective of, of your space. So I have a feeling that um, when we talk about, you know, we've spoken in many multilateral meetings or NGO meetings in very abstract terms. You know, we need sustainable infrastructure. Uh, okay. What does sustainable infrastructure look like? And then Earth said, okay, I'm going to show you what sustainable infrastructure looks like. Just go and get cocooned in your flat. And you have no treatment and you have nothing. And so it, 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 this, this is the turning point. This is the turning point where we begin to think, how do we build our spaces? And I think Singapore is really trying to do that. I, I listened to a presenter in Madrid talk about how they're just greening these buildings and building them differently instead of building an apartment block straight up like that. You know, they're building them in layers and they have one layer that has a green space and then another layer that has a living space. I mean, it's fascinating how they're thinking through the infrastructure. So um, how do we have those lesson learning and sharing, you know, south, south, north, south, north, north, um, north, south learning, all of that sort of synergizing. And I think this is what brings the globe together to rethink the very spaces where we live. Thank you so much, Masunda. It's been super inspiring to listen to you. I was with you in the forest at the top of that mountain and in those wetlands. How Can you tell us, how would you say, I am listening to the earth in your native language? In Bember is listening but it's mm-hmm. also feeling because you have to because you see your senses and sometimes also connotes the smelling so it's a connection it's the sensory dynamic so you feel and and and, and english you know, these, these words don't translate very well in english <laughs> no that's why it's so precious to have to have all these languages yeah. Thank you so much, Masunda. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited. And we're looking forward to being on this journey together and continuing to learn from the earth. <laughs> and join us for the next episode with James Floyd from Nature for Climate. 